Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Well, hi everyone, um, and uh, welcome to um, weekly JI Research Seminars. Today, um, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Evelyn Go. To many of you, of course, needs no introduction in terms of the work that, that she has produced and um, has influenced the thinking of many uh, students of international relations and also many uh, students of Asian studies more generally. Eve's latest work is um, The Struggle for Order, Hegemony, Hierarchy and Transition in Post-Cold War East Asia, published with Oxford University Press this year. The reviews have been, well, I mean, the reviews speak for themselves, uh, very uh, highly praiseworthy reviews and, of course, builds on Eve's earlier work, uh, very much looking at the hierarchy of relationships in, in Asia and uh, I certainly know that um, Elan's 2007-2008 article in International Security, uh, Great Powers and Hierarchical Order in Southeast Asia, which, which has citations in, in the stratosphere, uh, has, has also influenced uh, students of international relations and scholars of the region to a, very, to a very large extent, not to mention, of course, those working in government and elsewhere. Um, I'll just give you a bit of background uh, on Eve's career before um, I, I hand over. Um, as I said, Evelyn is a Frederick uh, Shedden Professor of Strategic Policy Studies uh, at uh, the ANU. Um, her research interests include East Asian security and international relations theory. Uh, Eve's published very widely on US-China relations and diplomatic history, regional security cooperation and institutions in East Asia, Southeast Asian uh, strategies towards great powers, as I alluded to, and environmental security. Eve's held uh, previous faculty positions at Royal Holloway uh, in London, the University of Oxford, and the Roger Rutland School of International Studies in Singapore, which I think was your immediate. That was my first job. Yeah. Your first job. Okay. <laughs> all right. Got it around the wrong way, but all right. And Evelyn today is going to talk to us about uh, rising China's influence in developing Asia. So. Evelyn. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming, um, and it's uh, it's such a pleasure to be in Brisbane and to be in Griffith. I was just. Trying to remember when was the last time um, I was here, and I think it was about 12 years ago, which is terrible, isn't it? Um, but it was for a Griffith event, so um, it's nice to be back. And um, the uh, talk today, um, you know, I discussed this with Andrew and, and asked what would be best to talk about that would appeal most widely to colleagues here. Um, and Andrew is quite keen on this one. Um, it's a <clears throat> collaborative project that I've been involved in. <clears throat> well, that I've been running for the last two years or so, um, and we're now, you know, at the stage of I've just put all the papers in to the publisher, and and we're expecting hopefully if all goes well for the volume to be out by the end of this year, if possible. Um, and you know, as the title suggests, it really focuses on on trying to sort of assess China's influence in parts of Asia, um, and. You know, as with many things, my starting point was a sort of real annoyance with the literature on, on China's power. Um, and I was sort of primarily annoyed by it because it was all about sort of let's count the beans, right, economic beans or military beans, um, and then let, let's just assume that, that that must have a structural or other kinds of impact on other people's choices um, and actions. Um, and so, you know, shifting balance of power must lead to this, that, or the other. Um, and 
As it happens, um, and some of you may have already read it, David Shambaugh had the same sort of idea and has put out a book, you know, much quicker than we have, um, China Goes Global, in which he basically, you know, engages in the same enterprise, you know, the thinking about influence as opposed to power only. Um, and David, of course, comes to a very similar sort of conclusion that we do, that, you know, the two things are not necessarily correlated. Um, as he puts it, you know, China's present everywhere, but not terribly influential in many places. And now I wasn't aware that he was doing this until, you know, much later on. But basically, you know, the thrust of the project is, is quite similar. Um, and the, the difference, of course, being that we actually do the legwork um, from the, the point of view of the target states and actors, if you like, rather than from a Sinocentric point of view, which is how David Shambaugh and others have tended to do it. Um, and for me, it makes sense to do that, uh, because we are going to look at influence. You've, you've got to not just look at the application of, of resources um, and attempts at influencing, but you've got to look at the influencee in order to work out whether it works or not. Um, so... The focus here really is on that question of how powerful is China, um, but really with a sort of sharp focus on how, how effectively China uses its growing power to get what it wants, right? And we're concerned mainly about the conversion of resources into impacts over others' choices and outcomes. And like I said, I mean, one of the key sort of foci of, or the key sort of focus of, of the project is really to sort of try and unpack how the targets of Chinese exercises of power have reacted and why. Now, um, we work from this sort of quite basic starting point of, I, I know that this is controversial, there is a massive power literature out there, and we can talk about this if you like, but it made sense to me and to the group as a whole that we would take power to mean sort of latent ca capability not because that's the only way to think about power, but because that allows us to really focus on influence as the effective exercise of that capability, right? Um, again, some of this stuff is very old um, in, in conceptual and theoretical terms, um, and I don't think particularly madly controversial to think about influence that way. Um, and, you know, just for the sake of formalizing it, you know, thinking about influence as the act of modifying or otherwise having an impact upon another actor's preferences or behavior in favor of one's own aims. Um, it's, it's, it's unnecessarily long a sentence, but a few things quite important there. Um, you know, that thing about modifying or otherwise having an impact. I'll go on to say why we put it that way. Um, and to have an impact on preferences or behavior, I also go on to say why. And then the really crucial part at the end, you know, in favor of one's own aims. Um, you know, the framework that we've worked from um, in the project is not only to try and sort of trace the, as far as we can, the causal connections between, you know, China applying resources, uh, you know, um, on, uh, you know, to, to, to achieve certain, to persuade or coerce or induce another actor to do something, not just that, but that, you know, the, the idea of what was China's aim in the first place, right? So important to identify that thing about what was the aim so that you can work out whether the outcome actually accords with the aims or not, right? Which seems to me as a sort of pretty crucial element of determining influence. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of starting point was really that very, again, 
increasingly common observation, you know, that comes up as a counterpoint to all the alarmist, you know, China's really powerful and the world is, is changing because, well, the giant has woken up, etc. Um, you know, the counterpoint uh, observations that there seems to be some sort of slippage, right, between, you know, the amount of Chinese resources and the Chinese presence in the world today and then what it manages to get others to do um, uh, in various parts of the world. Um, you know, we think of a few examples of this, you know. Um, Dan Dresden has done this interesting work about how China has had a very limited, significant impact on, on causing the United States to, to, to change its monetary uh, policies in any significant way um, during the global financial crisis, in spite of the massive holdings of China, uh, Chinese holdings of American debt. Um, within the region, you know, as we know, um, China has not really managed to persuade North Korea to, to take a different fundamental stance on its nuclear policies um, in spite of, you know, the, the economic leverage that it apparently has. And within Southeast Asia, you know, Myanmar is a very good example, again, of, you know, um, in spite of a long-standing over-dependence, if you like, on China, um, instead of, you know, that leading to a situation where China had lots of leverage uh, over Nepidao, what it has led to is really a sort of attempt to deliberate attempt to diversify away from the over-dependence on China. Um, you know, so that kind of slippage, which, which we can sort of, you know, add to ad nauseum, if you like, um, as you work through Asia, why, why do we find, right, that slippage um, is the first question. Um, you know, is it because the Chinese are, for some reason, squandering the power resources that they are accumulating? Um, or are they hoarding them for some other reason and choosing not to sort of apply them, you know, as we would think effectively at this point in time? Um, the second question that comes out of it also um, is does China project influence in indirect ways that are not that easily um, observable when we look at these kinds of examples? And I think the second question is quite important, and I'll come back to that. Uh, but before I do that, um, the project actually focuses only on developing Asia, as the title suggests. Um, and I've, you know, had a bit of flack <laughs> on this um, so far. And, you know, a couple of reasons for why do, you know, why we started with developing Asia. This is sort of phase one of the project in some ways. Um, and, you know, it, it's quite undeniable that China spent an inordinate amount of resources, diplomatic, economic, uh, political um, on these developing parts of its periphery um, over the last 20 years or so. And, and indeed, that, that's been a bit of a puzzle. You know, why devote so much attention to relatively insignificant, really not terribly powerful part of a region which, in which China has so much more strategic business um, with the, you know, other major powers? And of course, this whole thing about pacifying its periphery in order to achieve its primary economic development goals has been a large part of Chinese justifications of why it spent so much energy on developing parts of Asia. From a methodological point of view, of course, uh, we wanted to start with the easy cases. Um, you know, given the asymmetry of power, this is where you would expect to find, you know, most of the sort of evidence of China being successfully influential over other states. Um, correspondingly, of course, if you find that it's not that straightforward in these easy cases, then we might want to rethink, you know, our assessments or our starting points of assessing how powerful 
uh, we think China is in, in the international system. And, you know, I, I, I talked a bit just now about, you know, the difficulty of sort of disaggregating power and influence. And, and of course, you know, in the project there was a lot of sort of tedious rehashing of the power literature, etc. Um, and the, the point of focusing on the influence sort of part of it, the way we do, um, it, it arises from two problems, right, in, in existing approaches uh, to thinking about Chinese power. Uh, the first problem is this, that, you know, the moment you say power, you know, or, or however you approach it, when, even if you talk about influence, right, and, and this is how David Schembau does it as well when he talks about influence, um, it's really that de facto sort of Robert Dahl sort of thing about, you know, well, we know an act is powerful when they manage to get another to do what they otherwise wouldn't have done. So you look for the counterfactual that you show, you know, that, you know, they, they were forced or, or persuaded to, to change their preferences um, in, in a diametrically different way than, than what they were before. You know, the trouble with this, um, uh, we argue in the project, is that you end up then looking for what in many cases are the outline cases. Right. Um, you, you end up, like much of political science, looking for bookends. Um, because the truth is, there aren't that many instances where you can find examples of China getting others to do what they otherwise would not have done in significant issues. Right. Um, and again, this is exactly what David Schembau finds in his book. Unsurprisingly, there isn't much evidence of this stuff. Now, again, we come back to the question, well, does that, what does that mean? Does that mean China's been benign and has not tried to get others to do what they otherwise would not have done? Or does it mean China's been exercising influence in different ways that doesn't require right, that, that sort of massive turnaround right, in, in preferences and actions is what we're interested in in, um, in the project. You know, of course, um, as we all know, the power literature has become much more sort of sophisticated over the last 10 to 15 years especially. And, and there is a sort of whole, you know, whole set of approaches that look at not just divergent preferences but convergent contexts of convergent preferences and how power is exercised in those contexts as well. Um, a lot of this, of course, you know, falls in the soft power category. Um, I personally hate soft power as a concept, um, and mainly because I think it unnecessarily limits the mechanism um, of influence to attraction, which to me makes no sense. I, I don't really think we need to go down to the, you know, the attraction path to explain a lot of the empirical processes and, and, and puzzles that we need to explain on the ground. Um, furthermore, if you just think about soft power the way you know, the soft power advocates want you to think about it, it really cuts out a lot of the interesting interactions between, say, economic inducement right, and, and quiet coercion. Um, or discursive persuasion that, that, you know, very often comes out in these cases. So we are looking at, convert, you know, con we, we pay a lot of attention to context of convergent preferences and how influence operates in those contexts, uh, but we don't do the soft power type of analysis. Um, I think this is where there's a horrible, or oh, not yet, okay. So um, the, the influence framework that, that, you know, this project adopts really pays, uh, has couple of sort of stress points, as, as I know, but has a couple of things that it stresses, um, as I've said before. You know, the target actors, reactions and decisions is our focus. So the project has um, a total of, I think, 13 um, contributors. Only one is a China specialist. Everyone else is either a country um, or an issue specialist, um, you know, within our, our area of focus. 
And again, like I said, it, it looks at a range of contexts, ranging from divergent to convergent preferences. So, so you know, what, what the contributors were told to do was, yes, please look for significant issues in bilateral relations with China or in, institu in the institutional context that they were looking at. Look for the significant issues and see if China managed to get others to do what they otherwise would not have done, right, um, depending on what you find. Apart from that, how else has China managed to get you know, its aims fulfilled, right, um, and unpack this from the target's um, side of the story was what they were asked to do for it. it. It's just a very quick way of demonstrating that range of uh, modes of influence and extant preferences that, that we sort of hit in the project. Um, I'll go and talk about each of the categories um, individually, but you know, the, the, just very quickly to say that you know what we ended up doing was that we found that you know a lot of the emphasis in that came out in the cases that we looked at really fell in the first two um, uh, first two rows, if you like, of this table. It was really that sort of more convergent or indeterminate um, end of the spectrum rather than you know the divergent end of the spectrum. You know, I think one of the most sort of important things that comes out of the project is when you look at China in, you know, Chinese relations with developing countries particularly, you don't find a lot of evidence of China going in and saying, do this, right, to these, you know, actors vis-a-vis um, -vis things that they otherwise wouldn't have done. You, f you do find a lot of evidence of what I call preference multiplying, right? Um, so the, these are instances where, you know, you have already convergent preferences, right? Some of them very clear. I mean, anyone who works in sort of East Asia will be able to tell you some of the key, you know, what the English school people would call underlying primary institutions of regional society in East Asia, right? Um, that sort of full acceptance of the economic development imperative, right? Um, and also that understanding that state intervention in markets is, is more often good than not, right? For example, are two key types of convergent preferences that really come out significantly in, in all of these cases. And how preference multiplying works as a channel of influence is that all China's got to do is to mobilize these shared preferences into collective action, right? Um, and the thing that's different, which is why you know influence has been at work, is that this is collective action that very often was not, you know, that the others couldn't achieve before, right, without the application of Chinese resources or interest or um, energy, if you like. And, you know, again, in general, um, on a regional level, some very sort of obvious examples of what I'm talking about in terms of preference multiplying, of course, is things like, you know, the ASEAN-China free trade agreement, right? Um, ASEAN has been trying um, <clears throat> to negotiate its own ASEAN free trade agreement for decades with no success. Um, and, you know, the Chinese initiative of coming up with um, CAFTA um, was the thing that managed to mobilize, you know, that kind of shared preference into a collective action, partly because of structural issues. The, the, the sort of profile of Chinese economy is very different from that of ASEAN states. Um, and, and that interconnection made it sort of logical, as, as it were. But partly also, be, you know, in large part also because the Chinese market made the whole sort of enterprise worthwhile. Um, you know, in the less developed parts of, of, of Southeast Asia, again, um, you know, the great, sorry about the acronyms, but the Greater Mekong subregion types of initiatives, again, you know, a very good example of this kind of preference multiplying. Um, you know, the application of Chinese 
uh, resources and having China on board on a lot of these schemes makes infrastructural projects, you know, ranging from roads, railways that connect the Mekong Basin to large hydropower schemes, right? A lot of which are targeted at providing energy to both the Chinese and the Thai markets, uh, made these um, projects and programs viable in a way that they were not before. You know, and interestingly, what comes out in the uh, in the project, um, you know, are some really, you know, quite fascinating country studies. Um, so the project has, has two parts to it. There the, are the a range of country studies and then a the range of issue studies. Um, and the country studies really show up this preference multiplier uh, type of influence, um, but with interesting twists. Um, you know, so a couple of cases I'd like to highlight at this point. <clears throat> highlight at this point. Uh, the Philippines and Sri Lanka, some very similar dynamics going on there if you unpack the domestic political dynamics within these countries to explain why China's had this much influence right, over a range of issues, um, not just infrastructure building. Um, in the case of the Philippines, also Chinese influence in you know, trying to get the Philippines at various junctures to approach the sort of South China Sea conflicts differently. And what becomes clear when you open the sort of domestic context um, in these cases is that preference multiplying takes place through very particular types of channels. Right? There needs to be domestic complicity right, to allow for this kind of preference multiplier influence to take place. In the Philippines particularly, um, Eileen Baviera at the University of the Philippines um, contributed a really a great paper in which he looks at three cases, right? South China Sea Joint Development Projects, um, the National Broadband Network Projects, um, in which you know China was going to invest a large amount through a half-state-owned enterprise, and then the Scarborough Shoal standoff. What comes out very clearly from the first two projects is the kind of sort of domestic gatekeepers that Chinese influence is channeled through. Right. A lot of these gatekeepers are basically the ones who, individuals who form that hinge between business interests right, and political interests. Very often they are sort of part of the Philippines uh, government elite. Um, they have well entrenched and well established links um, within domestic patronage networks. And, um, and in the course of the 80s and 90s, particular networks that, which then sort of you know, became the channeling points for Chinese investment uh, into the Philippines. Um, and so, you know, what she managed to do is un unpack a lot of this in these two cases to show how, you know, the Chinese managed to get the contracts, you know, often at terms which made no sense within, you know, in competitive terms all for the Philippines. Um, but what's really interesting is she also manages to show how this doesn't work at the end of the day. Um, China's got these sort of channels in, but, you know, the, the peculiarities of the Philippines' um, domestic context at this time, a lot of this ends up being tied up with the rise and fall of the Arroyo administration and the corruption scandals um, that sort of erupted within the Philippines' uh, establishment in the mid to late 2000s particularly. So, you know, a really interesting case that, that sort of demonstrates that, you know, if you look, if you bother to sort of peel the sort of orange open on, on that sort of... Uh, uh, on the front of the sort of target states, um, even though the channels exist and they're very effective channels, the outcomes may not, at the end of the day, be in China's favor or 
fulfill Chinese aims because of domestic, you know, the, the exigencies of domestic politics on, on the sort of target states end of the story. Sri Lanka, again, a fascinating sort of comparative study to this. A lot of the sort of explanation of Chinese preference multiplier type influence within Sri Lanka has to do with the current Rajpasa re regime and that incredible sort of uh, network of, of nepotism, corruption, and um, you know, a lot of what can be explained about what looks like, you know, um, immense Chinese investment in critical strategic infrastructure, right, in, in Sri Lanka, if you look at it from a domestic point of view, has a lot more to do with where the current regime finds um, its base of political power within Sri Lanka <clears throat> and where a lot of this, you know, money is being channeled. Interesting in the Sri Lanka case also, not only is there no evidence of the Chinese sort of going in and trying to make the Sri Lankans do what they didn't want to do, it's quite the reverse. It's the Sri Lankan regime, this current regime, pursuing the Chinese, right, for um, investment, uh, influence, interest, and so on and so forth. And interestingly, again, if you look at the impacts of what China's been doing in Sri Lanka, um, the, the main impact has actually been on India, right, uh, not on Sri Lanka. It's caused the Indians to reassess um, some of their significant policies towards Sri Lanka um, because of the perception of geopolitical competition with China. So again, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that the picture is much, much more complex when you bother to open it up, you know, um, on, on the other side, on the other end of the story, apart from just what China wants. Um, the second category of influence that we look at um, is discursive persuasion. Um, this is one of the two categories where, you know, um, existing preferences are indeterminate. They may be aligned, they may not be. Um, but, you know, based, very simply, the idea that, you know, the propagate, well, this is the ideational stuff, right? Propagating an alternative set of beliefs or frameworks, you know, for behavior that, that by which, you know, the Chinese then persuade others um, to, 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 align, um, to modify um, their policies or, or approaches to certain problems and issues. Um, and here again, I mean, you know, we've gone for discursive persuasion, we've gone for it this way because it's really hard to disaggregate the tools of influence. It's no good saying it's soft power or it's rhetoric or it's economic inducement. Very often it's all of these employed together. Right? And economic inducement is a very large part of this, of course. So even though it's, it's, it's persuasion, and a lot of it is wrapped up in a sort of discursive context, um, the thing that does the heavy lifting is the economic inducement very often. Right? Uh, again, in general, you know, a good example of this, you know, the kind of pure example of this, is, is the whole Chinese campaign to counter the China threat thesis, right? the peaceful rise, peaceful development harmonious society and, and most recently, you know, the new model of great power relations. Well, there's a very good example of this sort of continual enterprise of discursive persuasion from the Chinese part. In the project, though, we focus much more sort of specifically on, on key, you know, cases where, where you can actually trace the stuff. So not, not the amorphous stuff, right? Let's give, you know, cases where we can actually delve into um, um, particular thematic context. And two things come out very clearly. Um, again, this idea of joint development in the South China Sea, and then the imperative of hydro de hydropower development in, in, in Indochina. Um, I'll just talk quickly about the, the joint development South China Sea issue. Ralph Emmers um, 
at the Rajaram School in Singapore did an interesting paper on this one, um, where you know basically he traces through you know the Chinese approach to joint development. It's basically produced, you know discursive persuasion in the context of this is a different way to approach these territorial conflicts, right? The attempt really to leverage on that sort of shared uh, economic development imperative, right, uh, to to persuade the Philippines and Vietnam particularly that there was some sort of you know viable alternative to to shelving the sovereignty disputes and pursuing some sort of collective action in the South China Sea issues through joint development, joint exploration of resources and potentially jointly you know, mining these resources, oil and gas usually, if they were found. Um, and interestingly, of course, you know, if you trace this through, um, it is a case of absolute failure of Chinese influence. Um, this joint development idea. Some of it has to do with domestic politics, um, as, as I've already alluded to in the Philippines case. A lot of it, though, has to do with inconsistencies on the Chinese side, right, in these attempts at discursive persuasion. Two particular inconsistencies, the inability to see that, uh, well, the inability to accept that the sovereignty issue and the joint development issue is connected insofar as China's not been willing to clarify um, in legal terms, its claims in the South China Sea. So the nine dotted lines issue um, has prevented, um, you know, real commitment on the part of of, of the other claimants that, um, to joint development ideas because of sort of looking down the line and, and realizing that there's going to be problems about how you do joint development if you don't sort of at least have a baseline uh, take on the territorial issues. And the other part, of course, is the Chinese sort of inability to accept that you know, if you hold out joint development on the one hand and then you do unilateral coercive actions on the other hand, this kind of doesn't gel <laughs> in other people's eyes. Um, so, you know, that's a case of sort of quite bad failure. Um, the hydropower, we've got a few chapters in, 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 in this volume that deal with the hydropower issue because it's such a big one when you look at the scope of, you know, Chinese involvement in, in developing parts of, of, of Asia, particularly Southeast Asia. The Myanmar chapter deals with this. Um, and we have a particular chapter on hydropower development comparing the cases of Myanmar and Cambodia. And again, you know, in that sort of attempt to unpack the domestic context of these things, you know, uh, even though China's trying to leverage that sort of joint economic development imperative and connecting it to hydropower development, um, what seems to be increasingly clear when you compare the Myanmar and the Cambodia cases is that, you know, another level of domestic um, variables does intervene to determine whether Chinese influence is successful in these cases. Um, and, and surprisingly, given the cases, it's actually civil resistance. Um, and we, we saw this, of course, most clearly in Myanmar with the Mitsne Dam, um, you know, um, um, the halting of the Mitsne Dam um, project. And I haven't got a great amount of time to delve into the detail here, but this is just to highlight uh, the, the, the cases, which I'll be happy to talk about in more detail if you're interested. Um, we also have a couple of fantastic chapters uh, in the book, and this was really something I pushed for because I, I didn't want to do a project which just looked at bilateral relationships uh, because, you know, the institutional setting of China's influence uh, globally is, is, is increasingly important. Uh, so we have this category of what we call institutional shape, influence through institutional shaping. Now, you know, this runs the risk, of course, going down sort of really difficult paths. You know, we saw this in the in the Barnett and Duval book, you know, where they try to look at, you know, power within international institutions. And 
and frankly a lot of the sort of analysis is very difficult to do. Um, our, our aim was, was much less sort of ambitious, right? Um, it really was, you know, to look at whether China has tried to gain institutional representation and positions in key institu institutions which are key, um, whether it's tried to set agendas, whether it's tried to change existing rules or make new ones to constrain others, right? Um, and we have two primary cases um, in this. Uh, one is on the issue, on, in, in the sort of monetary governance, uh, financial governance realm, where John Chachari at the University of Michigan did um, a paper looking at China's influence over developing countries in various um, levels of monetary policy. Interestingly, the paper looks at bilateral how China's tried to do this bilaterally with key countries, how it's tried to do it regionally through things like the Chiang Mai Initiative, which is part of the ASEAN Plus Three uh, work program. Um, and he also looks at it internationally within the IMF. Um, the other case um, is a really interesting one on how China tried to exercise influence over developing Asian countries in the context of the formation of the UN Human Rights um, Council. Um, in 2007 to 8, um, Rosemary Foote and Rana Imbedin did um, that chapter. And you know what comes across very clearly um, in both of these um, studies of institutional shape, Chinese influence through institutional shaping, is that there are very clear limits um, to to a Chinese ambitions in how much it has wanted China's wanted to exercise, you know overt influence over other states in these contexts. And secondly, you know, real sort of what John Chachari calls an influence gap, right, um, it, particularly in the monetary realm, right. Uh, and that, that's a better case because that's where you really can juxtapose that sort of vastly increased Chinese resources, right, um, and it's sort of quite limited um, influence if you go, you know, according to that list of sort of what China, what ought China be doing if it's seeking more influence in these institutions. And the Human Rights Council case really showed the, lim you know, the, the sort of outer boundaries of where de developing Asian countries were willing to defer to Chinese pressure or persuasion. Um, and notably, the limits came when they were forced to choose between you know, what China wanted and what the Western preference was. Um, again, you know, these are very, very sort of specific cases, um, and I'm, I'm not sure that this we can generalize across all institutions, but I do feel that we have to start with specific case studies. Um, and finally, the, the last category, of course, is what I call the power to prevail, right? This is the stuff of, well, did China manage to make anyone else do what they otherwise wouldn't have done? The, those, cat, you know, contexts of opposed preferences, right? Um, and it really is about prevailing over, over resistance. Um, and and just, just to be clear, um, you know, it's not only looking at attempts, right? Not only instances where China tried to do this. We're interested in efficacy. Did it manage to get you know, the outcomes that it wanted, right? Um, so not just the attempts, but the, the efficacy. And if you, if you look at it that way, um, again, in theory, the hardest cases, um, or in, in some ways the best cases, ought to be if we can find that these developing countries have changed their policies on Taiwan, for example, or their security relationships with the United States, um, or have changed their stance on sovereignty disputes with China. Right? These would be the best sort of cases to show um, power to prevail. Um, you know, it, 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 it's hard. There are very few such cases. You do find sort of, you know, 
small instances, of course, of you know China applying pressure on issues, you know, on 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 other countries' policies, on things like the Falun Gong, on on going to you know Nobel Prize ceremonies, um, and you you do find, of course, in the South China Sea, increasingly a few more examples of China managing to take and hold um, various shoals and things, uh, but. You know, the, the argument really is that when you set all that against the context of all the other material that we've come up with, um, there are really very few cases of power to prevail. Um, the, apart from the South China Sea, the other serious attempt we made to try and really find, well, there were two. Uh, it seemed to me that Myanmar and Vietnam would provide some really good potential cases for this kind of power to prevail case. David Steinberg did the, the chapter on Myanmar and really sort of pushed quite hard the envelope on, on this idea that Myanmar, you know, has been a satellite, right, um, of China. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, and Ang Cheng Guan did a paper on Vietnam. Uh, and both these papers had the advantage of sort of taking a more historical sweep as well, not just a contemporary, right. And Vietnam was, of course, fascinating because it's the one country in developing Asia where you can look at, you know, relations with China in times of war and peace. So you can really test the hard issues, you know, decisions at critical junctures of the ver you know, various bits of the Indo-Chinese wars. Um, and again, in, in, in both of these cases, you know, it's, it's, they do find instances where, you know, China managed to prevail over both Myanmar and Vietnam. Uh, but the limits of these cases are quite significant. In the Vietnam case, for example, you know, um, Cheng Guan comes to the sort of conclusion that, you know, in sp that the Vietnamese did cave to the Chinese at various junctures of the Indo-Chinese wars. Uh, but, you know, the, the times when they did this, really, the North Vietnamese, was when they really felt that there was no, they, they had no other sort of backing. There was no avenue for them, right, to, to um, to seek a counterbalance to China, the sort of vulnerability, the sense of vulnerability uh, for Vietnam, you know, at the peak of the sense of vulnerability for the North Vietnamese regime was when they caved to China in these issues of war and peace, but only then. And counterbalance to that, a whole other set of, you know, examples of when they didn't cave um, uh, to the Chinese. So um, it, that, that was a very, very sort of quick overview of, of I'm afraid, a, a large number of papers. Um, and, and a few sort of preliminary conclusions um, that I think we, we can come to. Um, it does seem that China, you know, makes fewer demands on even developing Asian countries than we would expect. It's not that it makes no demands, it makes fewer than we would expect. In these easy cases, it was still very hard to find um, cases of, of Chinese, China prevailing uh, against the resistance of, of these states. Um, when you take into account the kind of sort of, you know, preference multiplying um, and, and the in-between categories, it would seem that Chinese influence often brings about more continuity than change. It reinforces, right, the trajectory of preferences that already existed. That's what I mean by it's really hard if you look for sort of, you know, instances where China made others do what they otherwise would not have done because those, are, those seem to be very sort of outlying cases. But there's still all this other stuff you know, of China sort of managing to help log roll preferences, which are still instances of influence uh, because it brings about outcomes that, that were previously not achievable. On the other side of the spectrum, developing Asian countries seem to have more agency than, than many have given them credit for, right? Um, at the same time, though, if you take into account, you know, the, the dynamics of domestic politics, um, the, the dynamics of geopolitics, very often, of course, there is a third 
elephant in the room in these bilateral relationships. It's either the U.S. or India, usually. Um, there is less predictability to these outcomes than, than one would expect in, you know, when, when you look at the application of Chinese influence, even over these easy cases. Um, so, you know, it leads us to sort of argue that China's influence is a very mixed record. Um, and, and we do emphasize quite a bit in the conclusion uh, you know, the unintended consequences of Chinese applications of, of, of power even in developing um, Asian countries. Um, and, of course, what does this tell us, right? I mean, it has brought it sort of implications for, for Chinese notions of influence and exercise of influence um, on the Chinese side as well. Um, and notably, you know, we, we sort of highlight two, two sort of what blind, uh, two points, yeah. The first being that, you know, there's a real sense of underachievement. Um, if you look at the Chinese side of this ledger, it's not just us saying that, you know, guys, you are underachieving. Um, Mike, Mike Glosny does uh, a really uh, useful paper sort of serving, you know, a range of Chinese policymakers, a academics and analysts, sort of, you know, conceptions of Chinese influence over the last 25 years. And, and this comes up very clearly. You see this in the Chinese discourse. Um, in these words, you know, we're not achieving the kind of impact in the world that we ought to be achieving given, right, where, how powerful we are now in economic terms particularly. And a lot of soul-searching and, and sort of chest-thumping about why this is so, right, um, which leads me to the second sort of interesting point. Um, there's a couple of blind spots, right, in these explanations, Chinese explanations of why China is not as influential as it ought to be. Um, and the first blind spot I've already alluded to is that Odd disjuncture between, you know, the kinds of, you know, benign exercises of Chinese power and and you know the, the coercive exercises. These are held on, apparently on two different ledgers by Chinese analysts, uh, without the connection being made that uh, the, the two things actually interrelate and they, you know go into explaining why you don't get your way, um, even in cases where you would expect to. The second blind spot very pertinent to this project, is that the Chinese have still a tendency not to regard developing Asian countries uh, as autonomous actors, right? Um, the Philippines are standing up to us because the United States uh, is enabling them to do so, right? It's, um, it's encouraging Filipino belligerents because of the pivot to Asia. Um, it's a very sort of typical current kind of stance. Uh, but, but that sort of, you know, reads across the cases, is that sort of curious lack of autonomy given um, to, to, to these actors as well. And therefore the sort of slight shock when, you know, when the, when the military regime in Myanmar turns around and shuts down the Mitsne Dam project, for example. Uh, Chinese terribly taken aback, apparently. Um, so the sort of lack of attention to, to, to domestic dynamics, uh, autonomous domestic dynamics, is, is clear on the Chinese side as well. Um, I'm going to stop there because I've talked for too long, um, and I'd really, really like to hear what you've got to say. Thanks, Evelyn. I know you've had just come off the back of a very long plane journey, <laughs> so, um, so that, was, that was a great presentation. So could you please join me in thanking you? Oh, thank you for coming. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.